0: Hi, everyone. This is Jaime Alejandro, and welcome to the Arts Calling Podcast, where I interview hardworking, independent creatives in the literary, visual, and performing arts. We have a great episode lined up, but before I get started, I just want to give myself a quick shout-out. I know it is almost the end of January, but I have a... New tab of updates over at CruiseFolio.com. There's a quick link at the very top of this episode. Go ahead and check it out. There's some new stuff happening, including a brand new publication. I have a piece of flash fiction over at Barrel House. Thanks to the great editor, curator, and author herself, Ophelia Montelongo, who put together an amazing issue for the Latine Monsters issue over at Barrel House. So I hope that you folks check it out. I'm really proud of that piece, and uh, it's a good way to start the year. So with that said, let me take a minute to introduce our guest. Today, I am art's calling, Tyler C. Gore. Tyler is the author of My Life of Crime, Essays, and Other Entertainments, shortlisted for the Eric Hoffer Book Award Grand Prize. My Life of Crime was also a First Horizon Award finalist and appeared in the Independent Book Review's list of impressive indie books of 2022. Tyler has been cited five times as a notable essayist by the Best American Essays annual anthology and is the recipient of a Fulbright Scholarship for Creative Writing. For many years, he served as art director of Literal Latte and currently serves on the editorial boards of Exacting Clam and Stat wreck. His essays, stories and reviews have appeared in many of the fine, high-quality journals preferred by discerning readers like you. He lives as he dreams in Brooklyn. This was such a delightful conversation with Tyler that I just thought it it would set the tone perfectly for 2024. It was a conversation about life-affirming moments, about gathering the the stories and memories of the past and turning them into something that that is uh, truly exciting and in the now as his collection was it's very funny so i hope that you check it out it is now available from sagging meniscus press and i have the link in the episode description so without further delay let's give tyler a call Hello, is anybody there? Hi, Jaime. Hello, Tyler. How How are are you? you? Hey. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to meet you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, happy belated New Year, I should say. Yeah. Happy New
1: Year to you, too. How's it been over there in your neck of the woods? Well, it's currently snowing right now. Oh, really? Where are you at? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn, and this is the... Basically, yesterday was the first snow of this winter, and I think last winter, we, I think we didn't have any. Oh, wow. Yeah,
0: that's kind of surprising. I think uh, we're getting less and less snow. Uh, I'm over in Wyoming, so there's, yeah, not, not a lot going on, which is surprising. Normally, we're kind of uh, covered up at this point. Well, Tyler, thanks a bunch for your time. I'm so excited to get to meet you and learn
1: a bit more about you and your work. Uh, so you're in Brooklyn, you said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I I live in Brooklyn, and I've been in New York City almost all of my adult life.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder uh, what that kind of experience is like growing up in a in a but hustle bustle sort of thing. Because I'm not really, I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere, so I have no real sense of of what that experience is like. What was it for you, if you can look back and and give me a bit of that?
1: Well, actually, so. I was born in New York, but I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, just outside of New York City, you know, maybe about, um, oh, about a half an hour outside of New York City. So New York City was always the city for me. That's that's what everybody calls it. It's just the city. And um, when I was about... Oh, 23, like in the early nineties, I moved here. And for the most part, I've been here ever since. Oh, that's fascinating. In New York city. So when did you find writing when you,
0: was it something that came to you fairly quickly in your life or or did you kind of stumble into it later on? Or what was the, uh, the beginning of that for you?
1: So I always was interested in writing. Um, I think because I was really a big reader as a kid, my my mom taught me how to read very early before I was even in school. We had a lot of books in the house. Both my parents were big readers. So I read all the time as a kid, you know, for recreation. And um out of that, I you know, I I, I as I said to somebody else, I think reading is the gateway drug <laughs> for writing. <laughs> so you know, when you read a lot, you you, you want to write. And so um, I've always been writing. I was an English major in college. Um, and in, in the book that I have out now, My Life of Crime, um, those are personal essays. And I began writing those about, um, oh, quite a while ago in the 90s, where I had a column for a small magazine in Long Island and I just began writing these personal essays and I found that that genre really suited me.
0: Mm-hmm. And so was it a difficult discovery or it seemed like pretty early on you you had more of an intuition to go into memoir or
1: essay, perhaps opinion
0: mm-hmm. writing. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. my So my stuff is not so much, I mean, it's opinionated, but it's not opinion. <laughs> <laughs> like my It's really memoir. These are stories about my life. Uh, You know, I'm kind of adjacent to somebody like um, David Sedaris or maybe uh, David Foster Wallace's essays where I'm writing about me in my life. They're generally humorous. Um, And I, I think for me, the way I began to feel comfortable with that form is to learn how to write in a way that feels like I'm conversing with somebody like I'm telling you a story Um, because this kind of writing, it's not, it's not journalism. It's not an opinion piece, like a column on politics or something like that. But the kind of writing I do is more like you're hanging out with your friends and they want to tell you a, a funny story about what happened while they had jury duty or when they had their appendix removed, that kind of thing. So that's, That's kind of the genre I work in. I also write fiction, but this has been the main genre I work in. And my life of crime is all memoir. Mm. So when you were growing up, do you
0: recall uh, having these kinds of influences real time, like say David Foster Wallace or David Sedaris, or uh, what were the works or the writers who were informing the way that you saw the world at that age when you were younger?
1: You mean as a kid or when I first began writing in the 90s? I, I was when a young you adult. When first began
0: writing in the 90s.
1: Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, that's an interesting question. So a writer that I, I I mentioned in the introduction of this book that was really influential is a writer named Todd McKeown. Um He um, had a book that his first novel was published in the early eighties and it was called Fisher's Hornpipe. It's not a personal essay, but his writing, his prose style was like electric for me, the way he just did things that I hadn't seen done before. And it had a kind of like, it's a very funny book. It just had a kind of, you know, zany, like unhinged quality to it. (laughs) And so, I don't think I I write like him, but he was an important influence on trying to find my own voice. So one of the essays in this collection is called Stuff, which is about my my family's hoarding problem. <laughs> and when I, I was writing Stuff while I was finishing my undergraduate degree in my late 20s at City College, and I had a deadline and um, I kept going back to Todd McEwen's writing to be like for inspiration, really, like, you know, how, how, how can I capture this sort of angry, manic tone that I need to talk about my frustrations with all the stuff we have in the house? <laughs> so, so that was a, that was an important influence. And then sometime later, somebody gave me um, a copy of David Sedaris's first book and um, which at, at that time, he you know, now he's one of the most famous writers writing. But at that time, he was still sort of not so well known. He'd done some pieces on NPR. And so I read the Santaland Diaries, and that was also something. So I was already working in that genre and, and writing humorous pieces, but it was like, this guy is a great writer. So there's, <laughs> there's people like that. Yeah.
0: So it made it feasible for you to see a, a a lane or some kind of pipeline toward something that felt true. More true than fiction, would you say, or or something that you kind of balance together with fiction?
1: Um yeah, more true than fiction is interesting. So memoir and personal essays are a weird thing to work in because it's your actual life, right? So there's a lot of yeah. The the analogy I sometimes use is like the um, the old timey strip dancers who used to have like the feathers and the boas like 1940s, where there's a lot of illusion that you're seeing more than you really are, and so you know I there's I have to show things about myself that are uncomfortable or embarrassing, but I I kind of limit that you know, um, and another sort of pitfall for memoir writers is that you have people in your life. All your stories are about people. But when you're writing memoir, these are real people. And it's very nice to have friends and people who like you. So you try to limit those things. And like in appendix, for example, I, I, I changed the name of every doctor I encountered while I was having my appendix removed, things like that. Um, so me- memoir is weird, where it's a lot like fiction, where you, you have to tell a story that's an engaging story. But at the same time, you have to navigate this weird relationship with, this is my real life. And what I write here, people will read and know about my real life. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. So I think that would be a a nice segue to specifically talk about my life of crime. Great title. And uh, I love the the second title here, which is Essays and Other Entertainments. I think it speaks to what you're referring to right now. But if we could talk about the genesis of this collection and and specifically when you found that you had something that could become uh, a collection of essays?
1: Yeah, so i have been writing these um, shorter memoirs that, uh, you know, they're very concise um, and a lot of those were originally written for the column I had for a newspaper in Long Island. Uh, then I was publishing in literary magazines, particularly Literal Latte. Um, so I had this kind of body of these humorous um, essays about my life. And um, so I know the publisher of Sagging Meniscus, which is my press, Jacob Smullyan. And he approached me in the early days of the press, um, you know, which is a few years ago and said, you know, I I love your stuff. I'd like to put together a collection of your work. And I was like, great. I'm working on an essay right now about my appendix surgery, and I just would like to finish that to include that. So in this collection, that essay, appendix, is two-thirds of the book. It's basically (laughs) a book. And I didn't know that when I told him, just let me finish that essay. At the time, it was like maybe 10, 15 pages long, and it wound up being book length. Um, but, you know, he, he, he'd seen drafts of it, and he was like, just keep going, keep doing it. So I basically had a collection that he wanted to publish, and then I wrote a book that was included in the collection, which is Appendix. <laughs> so Appendix is really the cornerstone. So that's, that's how that came about. How this book came about was uh, sagging meniscus's interest in my work, and then them indulging me with with writing this book-length essay about my appendix surgery.
0: Oh, that's lovely,
1: but it does set the tone, right?
0: It feels like uh, having that being the centerpiece of of the collection kind of informed sort of the 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 order of events in in the collection.
1: Would you say? Um. Well, it's the it's the last essay in there, which I think is kind of funny because it's named appendix. <laughs> um, yeah, I, actually, the so in terms of if if that's what you're asking, in terms of the the way the collection is ordered, um, ac- actually Jacob ordered that. So he I, he he put it in in that order, and then I wrote an introduction for it as well. He's, um, you know, he's a very good publisher to have. So this is like a, Sagittarius is an indie press and he had a very light hand with um, editing. Like he's somebody who knows when to step in and when not to. Uh, And in fact, because some of these pieces were earlier pieces, I began revising some of them as we were getting close to publication. Some of those things were just typos or errors or things that had bothered me. But when I began doing some substantial revisions on an earlier piece, he immediately emailed me and said, I want you to stop doing that right now. Do not do that. (laughs) he was like, he's like, they're perfect the way they are. Don't mess with it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I listened to him. I'm curious what you saw in those
0: previous pieces that you felt needed adjusting um, versus what he saw, if you could.
1: Yeah. So there's a, well, I guess in uh, one that comes to mind is the first essay in the collection, which uh, is My Life of Crime. And that essay is about, um, it kind of revolves around the kind of pranks I did as a teenager growing up in the suburbs, ordering pizza for the neighbors. And and then it, it kind of delves into, you know, where I had a group of people, uh, like high school students, friends of mine, good friends of mine. and. And there's some characterization of who we are, and then I began revising that more, where I was pulling in. Ah, it's difficult to explain, but more like our influences to try to explain who we were, like you know, punk and things like that. But all of that was already kind of in there without being explicit. And he was like, "Don't don't do that. It's fine the way you had it." Where I was pulling in more specific references. Um, I I think that's a in general a thing with writers. Uh, I'm sure you know this, as a writer yourself, that you just you're never satisfied. You always want to revise, and and it really it it sometimes requires somebody else to like just pull it away from you and be like, stop doing that. Yeah, you know, it's 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 hard.
0: It must be such a gift to have somebody like your publisher who who is offering the room. And I don't know how. Difficult it is in publishing to find a good collaborator like that, but it seems like the indie presses are really the way to go in terms of the freedom to really sculpt something in in this way. Could you share a bit about that? How that relationship has has informed this collection as it is as it is now? Uh, I I know we we've kind of addressed it a bit, but I I just feel like for for a lay person like myself in publishing, which is something that I'm not too familiar with the difference between the benefits of an indie press and the hardships and and downsides of, of like major publication and what, what that's all about.
1: Right. So, I mean, this is my first book, so I only have um, experience with an indie press, but I, I have a lot of friends who are writers, so, you know, some of them are quite successful and I, since I've published this, I've become a lot more familiar with a lot of the different aspects of publishing. One of the things I would say about indie presses, and I've read a lot of books published by indie presses in the past year, is this is where real literature is taking place. the The larger presses are largely driven by commercial interests. Not that they don't, you know, not that there's not great literature being published by large presses. That's definitely true. But I think there's a lot more, Uh, They have a lot more commercial considerations. There's a lot more people involved. Indie presses, I feel on the whole, are about supporting a specific artist's vision. And so this is the place where people can do things that are experimental, unusual, you know, like including in a collection of essays, an essay that's book length, um, or even the other entertainments of my collection, which are these three absurdist pieces, like like a collection of recipes and things like that for for uh, deep fried cheesy snacks and things <laughs> like that. This is the kind of thing with an indie press where it's really refreshing and exciting. Where you're where you're reading things that are less filtered from the artist and less less tied to commercial trends going on, you know, publishers always have these sort of, you know, what's the fashion of this year, what's really in trend. And so you're liberated from that. And and thank God for indie presses. Absolutely.
0: Could I um, have you indulge me here and speak a little bit more about Three International Recipes? You mentioned absurdism in, in that piece. Right. And I'm really curious what what you mean by that and, and just as a personal interest of mine, um, because that's an interesting form to use as a way to share the message, if you could elaborate how that one came to be.
1: I, you know, I think it was a, a long time ago, I was just sitting down reading recipe books in like somebody's kitchen. And um, I just became intrigued by the the form of it, you know, where you have your list of ingredients and you have your method and your preparation. And I think my mind just wanted to riff on that form. So, the deep fried cheesy snacks was the, um, the the first one in there. And then I began thinking like, yeah, write another one. And then, you know, the the, deep fried cheesy snacks, what I loved about that was like, I think my favorite part of that, in addition to the like absurd recipe where it's like every kind of cheese and junk food, you can think of deep fried was, you know, the serving suggestion, um, you know, what is it? Something something about serving, served with, you know, cans of Budweiser or something, serving <laughs> with cans of beer. And then, and then I went like, okay, like, let's make it international. So the British one where it's just all depressing, like, you know, <laughs> stir until tired, you know? So that was, that was sort of the, the thought process behind that. And my favorite was the very unhappy, um, God, I'm getting my own titles wrong. Uh, the one about the squid, Um, I think it's a very unpleasant squid, I think. Um, I just love the idea that it, because it was supposed to be French, that this was going to be like an existentialist piece. You know, the, you know, this squid is no longer captain of its destiny, chop it all up and throw it in the pan. And, you know, the idea that it serves one under a single bare, you know, light bulb. So it was fun. That was a really fun, I, I, I like that. I like playing with form. Um, and the other absurdist pieces in there, you know, one of them is like, um, a kind of pop quiz on math that makes no sense. It's all about elderly widows, the elderly widow problem. (laughs) So that's another great thing that was that he allowed me to include those in there, even though they're not personal essays. Yeah. And they, they come as a kind of intermission, you know, between the shorter personal essays and the long piece of appendix.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. In the order that you, that you have them in there. Now, um, I'm curious of any of these pieces. Was there one that was beyond difficult that you felt? I don't know if I should include this. This is too personal. What is the? Is there one that challenged you more than others to, to remain there because of personal reasons? Was there something that you didn't feel was, was humorous enough to share, or maybe you you weren't balancing it just yet to to get out into the public, or you felt like it challenged you?
1: I mean appendix was very challenging for me because of the length of it um so the other pieces are shorter where as a writer I can see the sort of arc of the story so that so with the shorter pieces there's a kind of thing of like yeah I would like to include this that a lot of you know other aspects of things but you analogous to a short story in fiction It's like, you know, you have to you have to make this the most succinct you can. So a lot of stuff gets cut out. With appendix, I, you know, because of the length of it, I gave myself free reign to have all of these digressions into my thoughts about, you know, the Matrix and about Kafka and all of these other aspects of my life that were not related to the main story appendix, but came to mind as part of the narrative. And so that one was really. Uh, difficult to structure because of the length of it. It's, you know, even though it's only two weeks of my life, um, there's a lot going on in it. My cat is sick and uh, there's a lot of stuff about my marriage and my life at home. Uh, my wife is a character in that, in that piece. And so that aspect of things where, yeah, there's things where in earlier drafts um, that were difficult on a personal level, because that's what you were asking about, Um, there's a lot about, you know, my marriage, um, you know, like not, uh, super intimate, but, but I wanted to characterize my marriage so you understood what we're like. I've been with my wife for a long time. She's much more sensible than me. I'm very ADD. (laughs) I'm very cranky. And, and I hope that came across in there. Um, she's very fun by the way. She's not just sensible. And I think that comes across (laughs) too, but there was stuff related to that where, um, you know i definitely let her she read drafts and she was really generous with me about it, allowing so much of our lives to appear in there there was one or two things where you know she was like i'd prefer that wasn't in there um but yeah a, a lot of a lot of things did get cut out of that eventually and i had a lot of difficult writing the middle section of that which has a lot to do with where my cat luna was sick. And I was really, and it was a snowstorm and I was very worried that she was going to die because she'd stopped eating. And um, so that section gave me the most trouble trying to balance that with the main story of my appendix surgery and stuff was going on with that at the same time where uh, I was supposed to go in for my follow-up appointment. I didn't want to go partly because I'd taken all these laxatives and I didn't want to get in a taxi. (laughs) So my wife and I fight about that. so. Figuring out the rhythm of that, how to talk about, like, at one, on one hand, we're going through this absolute despair about our cat, and on the other hand, there's this sort of comedy going on with my wife being like, you need to go see your surgeon for your follow-up appointment, and me absolutely <laughs> refusing. She's making an appointment on the phone for me, and I start yelling, did you just make an appointment? I don't want to go in, while she's on the <laughs> phone with the surgeon. So that was difficult to structure, and also stuff got cut out from that. Yeah.
0: Oh, that sounds that sounds lovely and so rich. Uh in particular, I think it, and you might have to uh help me describe this a little bit more, but you know, there's no formula for humor, of course. it's it's so there it's so subjective, but um I love this idea of just the flattening of emotions, how something uh, that I don't want to say trivial as as like the laxative thing, but but the appendix just kind right. of leveling out and and then just carrying that kind of intensity at the same time. It's a very um tragic comic <laughs> i really I really enjoy that
1: yeah 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 i i i think i so i love comedy but i what i what i feel about it and particularly the way it played out in appendix is um comedy's closely connected to suffering in our lives like comedy and tragedy it really is like the masks that they have in the theater the two opposing masks that they're they're joined and so for me, like the best comedy comes from that place. It comes from the place of like, well, this sucks. This is horrible. (laughs) Later on, that could be very funny, even if what's happening is terrible. And I think that is a extraordinary gift that we have to be able to look in the face of suffering, mortality, death, all of this stuff and find the absurdity of it. You know, the, that, that, we live in an absurd world that that you can laugh and there's there's a kind of there's something about that that i almost feel is like that's the compensation you get from the universe is that you can <laughs> laugh at this ah that's beautiful is there i'm curious uh, because
0: of the amount of time that it took to sort of gather these stories or these these pieces what were the external factors that made it difficult to write these things because as we're looking over a uh, um, a good chunk of your life here in, in terms of maybe you wrote these in the nineties, maybe you wrote this one last year, Were there some right. that stick out in terms of the external factors that were affecting you, uh, you know, um, say early two thousands, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in, in your neck of the woods in the two thousands. And, you know, even in the last couple of years, you know, do you have any specific moments that stick out in terms of you couldn't just write these things because there, there were so many external factors that were, that were troubling you at the time?
1: Well, I I think the, I think external factors certainly inform the pieces. Um, I mean, like the sort of most poetic piece or lyric piece in there is October's Rain, which was written when I, I I had left the city for a little while because my my dad had been sick and my dad died. Mm -hmm. Um, And I came back and I'd sort of had to, Remake all my connections, you know, like, Mm. like, you know, uh, you know, so I just moved back to an apartment and I was living in the East village. And so I think October's rain was partly part of the feeling of that was the, the loneliness I felt at the time of I've just moved back in. I'm the roommate of somebody I don't really know. Uh, I think that's an experience. A lot of people moving to New York have at first. So that was one piece. Um, Appendix particularly was influenced by a lot of stuff because it was written over a few years. And during that time, Trump was elected. Mm. Um, the, I, I was still writing it during uh, um, the first year of COVID in 2020, that absolutely informed a lot of the feeling where I'm writing this piece, especially in the early months of COVID um, where my wife works in a hospital She's going to work every day. We we didn't leave the city like a lot of people did. We were here during all of that when they had oh, morgue trucks in the street. Yeah. Wow. And every day you'd look at the numbers, people were dying. And of course uh, I was terrified that my wife was going to get sick. And at that time, you know, people getting sick, it was like people were really dropping dead all over the place. So that was frightening. Um, so that, that, it, you know uh, that is also in that essay. Towards the end of it, I discuss what the these coming years are going to be like. But that informs something of the tone of appendix. What was going on outside? I had a lot of a lot of appendixes about feelings about growing older and about mortality mm. and about the fragility of life. You know that yeah. you know bad things happen to your friends; they get sick, all of that kind of thing it was definitely informed by by COVID to some degree. Mm.
0: And it seems like appendix then becomes sort of a feather in the cap of of this this journey of of essays, right? Because at the end, you're you're sort of contextualizing everything that came before. And I feel like the stakes are way higher because there's just so much going on around you that, you know, the futility feels a little bit heavier. The humor should feel a bit more full of relief, you know, especially right at the right. end there when when you've experienced so much. um I, I've spoken to some people who, we're kind of in 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 your shoes, you know, in New York at the time, and it just sounds so horrific. And I'm just uh, I'm very glad that you're on the other side of it, you know, and and have found some relief because i can't I can't imagine being in that situation um frankly,
1: <laughs> it, it, it was very strange. In the early months, it was really it really felt like the world had ended, you know, and you no, know, and from i what I remember most about that year was, everything changed from week to week, all all year round, like where, uh, you know, the bars and restaurants shut down and then, you know, okay, now they're allowed to give you uh, takeout beer, which is normally not, like in, in New York, that's normally not allowed, but they, they, they made that law so that, um, you know, the bars could stay in business. I, the whole thing of like going to the grocery store felt like you were entering like a radiation site where you were wearing, like, you know, your mask and everything yeah. and trying to rush around, get out as quickly as possible. But the, the year kept changing. And I, I think in that last um, part of Appendix, Appendix has five parts. And the last part, where I summarize something about what's going to happen in the year, uh, in that year, it, it was interesting because, you know, by the summer, people had. It had become established that you're not going to catch this by touching objects that other people have touched, um, that if you are outside, you're much safer, that you're very unlikely to transmit it when you're not in an enclosed space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we began meeting with friends for picnics and Prospect Park, which is uh, it's sort of like the Central Park of Brooklyn, this really beautiful park that I go running in was just incredible during that time where there's all these families picnicking there, you know, these groups of kids getting high, you know, <laughs> like, like towards the edges of the woods. And, and it was like beautiful. It seemed like almost out of the 19th century. So that was happening in the middle of all of this. So there was, there was things about that year where it felt like a different world. And we had the black lives matter protests going on at the same time during that summer, um, and that, that just became part of the rhythm of the city, that this is going on as well. And there was something about that as well, which I you know write about a bit, where even though that came from a place of uh, incredible pain, um, there was something joyous in the fact that that year there was all of these young people showing up for these protests to say, you know, like enough is enough and all of that. And it felt almost like defiant, not just of... You know what they were protesting. Um, you know which. Well, we know what Black Lives Matter was about. It was you know about black people dying at the hands of the police so easily, all the time. But there was also a sense of like in the middle of like we defy what's going on all around us. The the death that's happening. We are gathering because this is so important to us. And there was a strange joy about that a strange like in the middle of all that sterility a strange joy that young people were 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 gathering to make their voices heard and i don't know there was something very beautiful about that even though there was a lot of conflict and bad things that happened in connection with that it was actually much more peaceful than in new york city than made out i can tell you that that thing the first days of it were uh, definitely a lot of clashes, but for the most part, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the way the media made it out to be. Yeah. you and know,
0: It's always difficult to ascertain the degree of, of intensity, you know, when you're, you're getting a 24 seven report, that's just like, you know, all hands on deck, everything's an emergency. But uh, I think that context really makes it, um, makes it life affirming, you know, to know that in these really difficult situations, uh, there there's people who are, trying to move forward, you know, in the best possible way with joy, with purpose and and a little bit of fire, you know, but, but uh yeah, yeah. A bit of I, balance. I,
1: actually you hit on exactly the right word. There was something life affirming about it and, yeah. and life affirming. So there was that and, and all of the people in the park all, and I started riding a bicycle that year. So it was a year where people had to, 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 uh, to deal with this. But there was, I, I, I think that when I use the word joy, that is what I'm speaking of is that people found all of these ways to be life affirming during mm. that time.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, I I hope you don't mind. I've been thinking of the, this idea of a life well lived and what that means for a writer or a creative person, because I'm, I'm always sort of trying to mull these questions over and, and whether, how much literary success or fame is a component of that. But for, for somebody like you, you've, you're getting this book out, my life of crime. And as it stands in your life, I'm curious what that means to you to have a life well lived, not just as a writer who's putting work out into the world, but as, as a person who, who has a spouse, you know, as, as a member of your community, what does that mean to you? Um, and, And how does that make you a complete writer?
1: So I'm not sure I'm the best model for a life well lived like <laughs> I, I, I think what what comes across a lot that that's one of the ways appendix for example is very revealing and and the other stories as well like my life of crime um, where um I'm a very impulsive person i I drink too much I'm very disorganized so all of those things are are part of it and, and actually a lot of what you know, like in Clinton Street days, I abandoned an apartment because I'm three days behind in the rent. Um, Clinton Street <laughs> days was, you know, my memoir of living in the East Village when I was in my 20s. So in terms of a life well lived, I'm not sure I can offer um, a lot of advice because I I think I'm not a, um, I, I, I think I have a very chaotic life in certain ways. But what I do think, and definitely this came out of uh, Twenty, twenty, but as I've gotten older, too, one one thing that's been fantastic in my life is I have terrific circle of friends, really wonderful, smart people, supportive people. I have a wonderful wife. Um, and so I have not necessarily been like the most commercially successful person in a lot of ways at this point in my life. But the fact that I have these wonderful people in my life, there's no replacement for that, and and in that sense, I do think I had a life well lived, where I, I've been connected to so many wonderful people.
0: Awesome, awesome. Now, just a couple more questions to be mindful of your time here. Uh, now that my life of crime is uh, is about to go out into the world, or it's it's already out, right?
1: No, it's been it's been out for a year now. Okay. It came out it came out okay. in twenty two, and it's. Um, so' it's, it's been out for a year. Okay, yeah, it's, it's been reviewed. Yeah,
0: great to hear it because I'm curious this gives us a, a good enough frame of time for us to to talk about how this sets up the next stage of your of your writing, your projects and and what else you have lined up. What did you learn from this process, not just the writing process, but the publication of it going out into the world and what what are you left with that you want to continue to do um, in the next phase of your writing or project?
1: yeah so and so you asked sort of two parts part Mm -hmm. about the writing and then the other part about actually having a book out there um so the writing part with writing appendix because it was the first i I, i'd had some longer projects that um i i just could not pull together that i'd worked on before appendix so appendix was a a big success for me and where i i began to understand how to do this how to structure a long story how to work with um, a lot of different moving parts in a narrative. So I I have an earlier essay that I was working on for a long time. It covers some similar ground in the sense of, um, there's some things I allude to in appendix, like when my wife and I did IVF and things like that, or various chapters of our marriage that occur before the events of appendix, that I, I was working on this essay about an earlier part of my life, and I have been thinking about, uh, picking that up again, because I have a better idea about structure and, and how to deal with, you know, your whole life is like a whole bunch of things. How do you structure that into a story? So that's on the the writing angle of that. I I think I did learn a lot from writing appendix. On the book angle, yeah, there was a steep learning curve with that. I didn't have much of a social media presence at all. Um, I had a Facebook account that I never logged into and and actually, after Trump was elected, I stopped logging in at all because there was just too it's much very smart I, I, yeah, there was just too much you know yeah. i conflict and you know all of that stuff ugliness um but when I had the book out i'm I'm now basically on every social media platform that you can name pretty much <laughs> um you know and so I'm I, still learning how to manage that because it, it takes time. Um, I, you know, have been learning more about just the way that, you know, when you have a book that reviews are important and inter- interviews like this are important, all, all of that, I was really, I never paid much attention to the whole publishing world in that sense. So yeah, I have learned uh, a lot in that way too. A a wonderful thing that's come out of this year and actually a a great thing that's come out through social media is that I've met a lot of other writers. Um, I've read a lot of books by writers that I've met um, and I feel I belong to a writer's community much more than I did before and that has been very rewarding. That's such a gift. I mean,
0: as you said, having that sense of community and especially online for me, I, I feel like it has been a godsend, has been a blessing from the cosmos or whatever's up there, you know, for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, now, um, lastly, I wanted to ask you if there are any works lately that are inspiring you, that are lighting the flame again, you know, it doesn't have to be books, but just any kind of media or storytelling experience. What are you experiencing right now that is, that is uh, uplifting you creatively?
1: Uh, in, in terms of, so are you speaking in terms of books maybe, or what, what, what are you thinking about Books, here? movies, uh, hi, music, visual art. So, yeah. Oh yeah. I, well, all of those things are really important to me. Um, man, That is actually a tough question. I've read so many good books this year. Uh, There's an essayist I really like named uh, Melissa McCarthy who does something very different than what I do. She doesn't write memoirs, but um, she wrote a book called um, Shark Surfer's Death, I believe is the title. It was terrific, uh, where she's just a person who weaves together a lot of different ideas, and and I really like that. Uh, and she has a new book, which I haven't read yet, um, but this just came out. Actually, she's she, this book was published with the same press as me, which is uh, called Photo, Phyto, Proto, Nitro, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to that. So Melissa McCarthy is an interesting writer. Uh, um, I recently, a friend of mine wrote a great book, um, my friend David Winner, read a great book called Master Lovers, which was about his uh, aunt, who his great aunt who uh, had been a publicist for the Philharonic. but he found all these love letters from the 30s after she died. Oh, wow. And he yeah. began to try to reconstruct who are these people and some of them were actually pretty famous and some of them had kind of a very sketchy past. So, <laughs> Those things are adjacent to the genre I write in, but very different than than my personal essays. So th- that has been interesting, reading things like that. Um, yeah, so TV shows, I, I, I watch a lot of TV. I mentioned in the book a lot is, um, although this is not new, is the show The Leftovers, the HBO show, mm-hmm. that that really spoke to me. And in fact, while working on Appendix, I listen to the soundtrack to the leftovers. It has a great soundtrack Mm -hmm. often while writing um, because I wanted that spooky feeling in my mind of the world is ending and the sense of this, the sense of the world is a dangerous, mysterious place and all that, you know, all that is given to us is to experience it. And some something of that feeling I wanted in me while I was writing it, even though the stakes are not so high in appendix about, you know, I had routine surgery, but I wanted that feeling of living in a mysterious world mm. while I was writing.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Now, is there anything else that you'd like us to know about My Life of Crime essays and other entertainments?
1: Um. It's very funny. <laughs> and I, I think it's I think it's very readable. Um, I I actually the thing I think most about it in some ways, taken as a whole collection, it is a kind of love letter to my life in New York City. It mm-hmm. it, it it is all about what it's like to live in New York City, the frustrations of it, um, the beauty of it, and most of all the people uh, You know, there's a in appendix, uh particularly but all throughout the collection, you interact with all different kinds of people in New York City from all different ethnic backgrounds, from all different life situations. Mm -hmm. This is and you ride with them on the subway, and every single day I will have a conversation with a stranger. Seriously, every day. So every day I'm I'm talking with somebody that I've never met before. And so I think that quality comes across in the whole collection of, I am a creature of the city. And even though life in New York is really, it is difficult to live here. You live in tiny spaces, it's expensive, and there's all sorts of things about it that are miserable. And yet there's this, where you just meet all of these People doing their own thing, and there's something about that where I really love that, it's like living in in the center of humanity in that way. So, in a way, that's what the book is about. Beautiful,
0: remarkable note to end on.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, Tyler, yeah. this has
0: been such a pleasure, and I can't wait to read the rest of this collection, My Life of Crime. I hope that folks go check it out, and I'm going to have the link in the episode description. But I do hope that we get to catch up again because I'm just scratching the surface with you. I, I don't. You know, sometimes I don't even know where to begin, you know, uh, because there's so much happening here. But this has been such a treat. And uh, I do hope that we get to chat again down the road.
1: I would love that, Jaime. I I had a great time talking to you. You're a great interview and I really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome.
0: Well, I will be in touch on the Internet. I'll let you enjoy your Sunday. But please take care and have a happy new year.
1: Belated. Yeah. Happy (laughs) New Year to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye bye.